You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. finding a way to use men and women. See, I think the Lord chooses ordinary men and women, ones who look like they won't amount to much, and then he does extraordinary things with them. God does not call the equipped. He equips the call. I love that. I love that. That says it all. See, there is only one qualification that the Lord is looking for, a heart that is loyal to him. The Lord is looking for those whose focus is on him and those who have placed their trust in him. God is in the business of using the foolish things of the world to bring shame to the wise. Today, Pastor Dave will be reminding you that God delights in using the humble and the contrite in heart, not those who are proud. The Lord took fishermen and a tax collector and transformed them into his apostles. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 1 as he begins his message, The Promise of the Father. did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now when we think of the apostles, and when we think of those that follow Jesus Christ, we tend to see them as superhuman. We imagine saintly figures in stained glass, people who were somehow different than the rank and file of what we would think normal humanity, people who were a cut above. But when you closely examine the scriptures, you discover that these were just ordinary folk, a group of ordinary people subject to the same weaknesses, the same shortcomings, the same fears, the same failures that you and I are. In fact, It appears to me that Jesus went out of his way to find a group of individuals who had little claim to greatness apart from their willingness to believe in him, obey him, and simply want to hang out with him. It's interesting to me that these seem to be the ones that he's chosen. And when I look back on the early church, I see a group of ordinary men and women with only one thing in common, their love for Jesus Christ. This group has been betrayed as unintelligent, untrained, uneducated. We could say that this group didn't have much to offer according to the world's standards. Let's face it. If you and I were going to choose men to change the world, would you have picked these guys? Really? Well, suppose you work for the management company or the consultant group of Jerusalem, and Jesus came to you and said, I want you to go through this stack of resumes on guys that I'm going to choose for this new venture in faith that I'm going to start. I'm going to give you these 12 guys, and I want you to look through their resumes, and I want you to send them through a battery of tests to see what would happen to them. How would that go? Imagine, now, Jesus gets this letter, and it says, 
thanks for submitting the 12 names of the men you're considering for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken a battery of tests, the results of which we've run through our sophisticated computer analysis. We also arranged personal interviews of each candidate with our psychologist and vocational aptitude trainer. It is our staff's unanimous opinion that most of the nominees are lacking in qualifications for this type of enterprise. We recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Now, we have to tell you, we find Simon Peter emotionally unstable. We find him given to fits of temper. He seems far too impulsive to put it to a mission of oversight. And his brother Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers James and John, oh my goodness. Simply put, they place personal interests above loyalty. They seem to be very impatient with others. And due to their impatience and ambition, you know, they could become disgruntled employees. Then there's Thomas. He demonstrates a questioning attitude that could be tended to undermine the entire situation. And we feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. In fact, of all 12, we found only one candidate that shows great potential. He is a man of ability. He is a man of resourcefulness. He is a man of ambition. Therefore, we recommend Judas Iscariot as your comptroller and right-hand man. Sincerely yours, the Jordan Management Consultants of Jerusalem. Well, but the Lord sees things differently than we do, doesn't he? The Lord is always finding a way to use men and women. See, I think the Lord chooses ordinary men and women, ones who look like they won't amount to much, and then he does extraordinary things with them. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. I love that. I love that. That says it all. See, there is only one qualification that the Lord is looking for. A heart that is loyal to Him. The Lord is looking for those whose focus is on Him and those who have placed their trust in Him. I mean, this should not be a new thing because in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says this, quote, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. The Lord is looking for a heart He can use. The Lord is looking for a heart that is open to him, that wants nothing more than to please him and to serve him and to follow him. The Lord is looking for that kind of heart. So the questions of the day has to be, how in the heck did these individuals turn the world upside down? And how can we be that kind of church in these last days? What's the key? I think we can find the beginning of the answer in today's scripture. As we have been studying chapter 1, John the Baptist has been giving his testimony about Jesus. And you'll remember in our last study, John introduced Jesus to the world. When he saw Jesus approach it, he yelled, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everyone in earshot knew exactly what John was talking about. They all practiced the Passover sacrifice. They all went to the temple and knew the sacrifices. They knew exactly what John was talking about. John says, this Jesus, he's the one I've been telling you about. He's the one who's preferred before me. So John is sort of prophesying of the one who was coming after him, the one who was mightier than him, the one who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John testifies of Jesus, declaring that he didn't know this Jesus until he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him and remaining there. The one that God told him would happen. 
And he said, when you see this, God said, he's the one. And John saw this. John the Baptist saw this. He was a witness with his own eyes. He saw the Spirit. And then, after Jesus' resurrection, he says something very familiar in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus assembles the disciples together and he refers to John the Baptist and speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He commanded them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What can we learn from these verses? What can we learn from the verse in John 33 and the verse in Acts 1, 4, and 5? Well, first of all, we can learn that there is an experience that is properly called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This statement of John occurs in all four Gospels. Not one Gospel leaves out this one statement. So, in my mind, if God's Word says it once, I pay attention to it. If He says it twice, I start to take notice. If he says it three times, I scratch my head. And if he says it four times, man, I'm looking deeply. I mean, how many times does God have to say it? The statement of John occurs in all four Gospels. And John testified that Jesus is the one. Not only did he testify of it, he pointed to him and said, that's him right there. That's the one. He's the one that will do this baptizing. This verse teaches us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct from regeneration. We're going to read in chapter 3 that you must be born again of the Spirit. Born again of the Spirit. But then there's another thing to be baptized with the Spirit. So Jesus assembles his disciples together and he tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Can't you just see all the disciples sitting around in a circle, everybody leaning in so they could hear what Jesus is going to say, his exact words. They don't want to miss anything. Everyone's staring at him intently, hanging on to every word that's coming out of a mouth. And Jesus speaks to him. He said, wait for the promise of the Father that you've heard from me. This must have been an awesome conversation. Can you imagine looking around and saying, what promise? What's he talking about? What promise of the Father? As they talk to one another. What's this talking about? And then he continues, says, John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, you can imagine the disciples kind of compute this. What was this baptism he was talking about? Some probably thought, well, he's going to take us back down to the Jordan and we're going to get rebaptized. Or would they hear a voice from heaven like what happened with Jesus? What was he talking about? The promise of the Father. You ever count the promises of the Father in the Bible? I learned that this weekend too. There's only about 7,000 of them throughout the Bible. 7,000 promises. Can you see the apostles? So much promise is this? What's he talking about? What's he talking about, the promise of the Father? I believe that this promise is what he's referring to is the promise given to us by the prophet Joel in Joel 2, 28 and 29, when he says this, and it shall come to pass that in the latter days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams and your old men shall see visions. And upon my servants and my maidservants, I shall pour out my spirit, says the Lord. I believe this is the promise of the Father that that day is going to be done when God comes and pours out His spirits on all flesh, all believers. And each one of them will receive that dynamic power from God. The dynamic power from God. Man, if you're living the Christian life and you don't have this dynamic power, you're missing out. You're struggling right now. 
You're struggling with various things in your life because you don't have the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit within you. The dynamic power that you'll push through. Maybe you'll get it today. Maybe today is the day that God has been waiting for. This is certainly not the first time Jesus mentioned the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke more of the Holy Spirit than ever. But this was a direct command. This was a direct command from the Master. Wait. Wait. Now, some people have a slight problem with this. They have a slight problem with this, especially when compared to John 20, 22. In John 20, 22, I'll refresh your memory, refresh your memory, Jesus blows on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's clear that something was given out and something was received. Something was given out and something was received. Many people say, well, that was just symbolic rather than an actual pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It was prophetically symbolic and everything else would come at a later date. However, others believe that this should be seen as an event when the disciples actually received the indwelling Spirit of God. In other words, it was a time when they were born again. They received the indwelling Spirit of, the, of God. We look at this verse and connect it with Genesis 2 verse 7 that says, The Lord Jehovah Elohim breathed on Adam's nostril the breath of life and he became a living soul. This word means to breathe with force. And you compare that now as the risen Lord, Jesus, breathed on the apostles so they might receive the Holy Spirit. I see this passage in John 22 as the place where the disciples became born again. They were regenerated and they became born again of the Spirit. At this time, the Holy Spirit was given out in order to establish spiritual life. To establish that which is called spiritual life. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3 at great length. But see, in Calvary Chapel, and I personally believe that there are three experiences that you can have with the Holy Spirit. There are three experiences that you can have in the Holy Spirit. In case you're comparing the two verses, two separate relationships to the Spirit are in one verse. John 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says this, quote, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he dwell will be in you. Look at these verses. In these verses, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the paracletus, the one who will come alongside. He said that they knew the spirit and that he was dwelling with them and that he, the spirit, would soon be in them. Now you have to look at the three Greek words. The Greek word with is para. Para, it means to come alongside. Hence, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the paracletus, the one who comes alongside. I just said that. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is already dwelling alongside each person. This is a relationship that every living person in the world, apart from Christ, has with the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 8 through 11, we see that about the work that goes on with the Spirit of God. He works in the hearts of men, and he works in the hearts of women in, in the world. What does he do? He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That's his job. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's with all those in the world. He was with you before you accepted Christ as your Savior. He was working in your heart. He was convicting you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He was doing these things and stirring your heart. He comes alongside you. There's a second experience. Jesus mentions it in 1417. And this is the end experience in Greek, E-N, or the inexperience. When I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am dwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit comes to live in me. He is in me. The Holy Spirit is now in me. He will dwell in you. The Spirit has convicted a person, and he's brought to a place of repentance, and then he takes up residence in the person's heart. Now, the Spirit will never force his way into your heart. He will not force his way into your heart because he's a gentleman. He waits for you to accept and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then he comes in. Jesus says, I will not leave you as an orphan. I will send him to you, and he will be with you. He will be in you, and you will take him. He will go wherever you go. He will never leave nor forsake you. A person yields his heart to Jesus. The Holy Spirit enters the person's life, and the work of regeneration begins. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He conforms us into his image. This is the experience, I believe, that John is talking about in John 2, 22, when he breathed under the apostles. The Spirit took a precedence in their lives of these men, and things began to change. But, at Calvary Chapel, and I personally believe that there is a third relationship that is available to the believer. Only to the believer. Only to the believer. So let's make no mistake about it first. You must be born again to receive this experience. Third relation is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it the baptism of the Spirit. Some people call it being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't really matter what you call it. What matters is, have you experienced it? Have you experienced this relationship? Whenever a person wants to call, is not important. We need to have this. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And there are two words that we need to look at. First of all, we need to look at the one when the Holy Spirit comes upon. U-P-O-N, upon. In Greek, it's the epi, E-P-I. Separate word from N and para. It's a separate word. It means a P, to come upon with power, enabling. Enabling for what? Well, Jesus tells us what it enables us for. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for one main purpose. It empowers us to be witnesses for Christ. It empowers us to witness Christ to a lost generation, to a generation that doesn't know him. And secondly, if you look at the word power, it's that wonderful word dunamis in the Greek. It means an explosive power, a miraculous power. And we get our word dynamite from that. The word comes from the root word dunamai, which means to be able to or to be made possible. This, like I said, this is where we get our word dynamite or dynamo. And it's used in Acts 10.38. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, dunamis. This is not an ordinary power. This is an enabling power. This is a power that gives you strength. Remember in Acts? Sure you do. Every time they got together, what did they do? They prayed for what? Boldness. They prayed for boldness. Why? Because they had to stand up to the Sanhedrin. They had to stand up to the people who were against them, to the persecution. They had to witness Jesus Christ. They prayed for boldness. And every time they prayed for boldness, something happened to them. Holy Spirit fell once again upon them. And one in a while, the place shook. And they were empowered. And you see these bold men, the same men, the exact same men who ran 40 days before, who ran away because Jesus was being taken to the cross. The exact same guys who ran away. In fact, our man Peter. You remember Peter, the bumbling, crazy guy that we can all relate to? Every time he opens his mouth, he said, wait a minute, I got room for my other mouth, or my other foot, and I shoved it in. 
Peter speaks the first sermon and 3,000 people get saved. The same Peter. The Holy Spirit enables us to be witnesses of Christ. He enables us to be servants of the Most High God and to turn the hearts of others toward Him. This is the power to live the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. If you're trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit's power, you're struggling. You're having a hard time. God has given us the power that we need. It's a transforming power. And we've come full circle. We've asked the question earlier, how did these unqualified individuals turn the world upside down? This is how. They tapped into the power source. They tapped into the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same power which transformed the Apostle Peter from a hot-headed, quick-tempered man into a sure-footed, quick-thinking instrument ready for the Master's use. You see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost. And he's quoting scripture left and right. They changed the way people related one to another. There was a relatively small group who began in this meeting in an obscure upstairs room. They lacked every advantage that we know. They didn't have PowerPoint. They had candles for lights. They didn't have computers, satellite technology. They didn't have great big stadiums. Oh, they did, but that's where they were killed. So they didn't go there. They didn't go to the big stadium. Don't go to the stadium, pal. I don't care if you got a ticket or not. Why not? Because you're lunch. For the Lions, they didn't have the ability to publish their material. They had no financial success whatsoever. They were burst, basically dirt poor. There weren't huge, large cathedrals where people could come and worship in. But they did have the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples to wait until this experience happened firsthand. Wait for the power to do the work I've called each of you to do. There's another thing that men made these men and women special. In my mind. Even though they might not have completely understood what Jesus was talking about. Even though they were afraid of being found out. Even though they were afraid of being exposed to the Jews and, and being put to prison or death. They waited. They did what they were told to do. They obeyed their master. They waited 10 more days. They waited 10 more days. They waited in Jerusalem, the very city where Christ was crucified. But they knew this was the promise of the Father. Ten days they would receive the promise, and the day of Pentecost came. Jesus commanded the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit came upon them with power. So whether you call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, doesn't matter. The important is that the true issue of being baptized with God's Spirit or being filled to the fullness with His power and Him. In my own experience... I can tell you that since my baptism in the Holy Spirit, my life has changed dramatically. Dramatically. There's no way I would be standing before you today without that power. There's absolutely no way. No way. It's that power within me, the power that came upon me to do the work that He's called me to do. He called me to the work, and now He's making that work happen. My life changed drastically. I've become bolder, stronger witness for Jesus. You are sure. The Gospel of John was written from a perspective that provides an eyewitness account of what happened during the life of Jesus here on earth. Different than the other three Gospels, John's book describes Jesus in ways that confirm him as the Son of God. There are things done and said that can only point to Jesus being far more powerful than what a human could do. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as I Am. 
In this book, John recounts how Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the resurrection and the life. These were bold statements, but Jesus proved throughout his ministry that they were indeed true. He lived a life that compelled people to follow at that time, to seek him out, and to commit their lives. And we can also follow him today. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. Perhaps you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about faith, and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at AssureHopeRadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on A Sure Hope.